Welcome everyone on this new episode of Let's Talk AI. Today I'm super happy to be with Hussein Shihoub. Hussein, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. How are you, Thomas? I'm super good. I'm super happy to have you on the show today. For everyone who is uh, tuning in, Let's Talk AI, the, the podcast where we discuss um, in depth uh, with experts around data and AI. Today we have the honor to have Hussein. You have quite an outstanding record. Um, maybe for the people who might not know you, could you introduce yourself in a few words? Yeah, thank you, Thomas. So yes, I'm Usam Shiyub. So um, today uh, I'm a solution architect focusing on data and AI at Databricks. So I'm a data and AI enthusiast. I've used a few years working in industry uh, since basically 2010, where I have like uh, taken various roles, including roles in academia, roles uh, in industry, working with customers, solving data and AI uh, problems and trying to help them actually to achieve uh, Uh, their goals uh, every day, basically. Yeah. Outside mm. that, maybe uh, yeah. Uh, I'm from Algeria, and uh, I love like uh, sports, football, reading about history, maybe hiking, watching uh, Netflix movies and series, and so on. So a lot of uh, fun stuff also outside work. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, we're going to come back on on different points. Maybe I'd like to know about the the state of the art of Usem Shihub. So, what do I mean by that? I mean, like, what are you currently working on? What are you most interested on? Like, and and do you have a, a why on um, on like uh, like uh, everything that you're doing today? And so you 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 say that now you're currently at Databricks, but before you were um, at AWS, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So do you have a, could we have a maybe short version of your state of the art? What are you most interested in? And, uh, and um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that question. So yeah, I started working basically in academia back in 2010. And okay. the main reason for me choosing this kind of field is related to cloud computing. That was an emerging technology with early also big data systems around Hadoop. So I, I, I fell in love with that kind of technology, cloud plus data, you know, and uh, that's something that drives me uh, throughout my career and uh, later on with machine learning and uh, the incredible, let's say, uh, uh, advance in uh, AI. So, yeah, I'm, um, I'm driven by technology. And as you mentioned, I've worked for uh, AWS and more, more, more recently Databricks two pioneers in this space of data and AI uh, that work to enhance everyday technology and help customers actually solve the hardest problem that exists out there. And this is like very fun, very challenging, but also something that gives you this um, maybe uh, great opportunity to look into the advancement and the state of the art uh, of what's happening in data and AI. Hmm. Amazing. Well, I have many questions on this episode. Uh, also, quick question. Um, what do you most like about cloud in general, like cloud infrastructure and, and just the cloud? Like what, what are you most interested in? Like, why do you like it so much? Uh, I mean, if uh, there are lots of benefits, but if you may take one or two, it would be uh, this elasticity and agility, you know? I, uh, I'll give you an example. You know, in the past, I used to work for this company, actually, working on this production environment. We, were, we deployed the, like this Hadoop infrastructure and the environment. And it used to take us like uh, 
few months to add new nodes to the infrastructure or the cluster existing. Now you need to, to buy hardware, you need to buy these this expensive servers and it will take few weeks to get delivered and then you need to introduce that to your system, maybe include it in your hypervisor and then start to install the most relevant things that you need for your platform to do that in order to provide this kind of data platform. With the cloud, you can do that in a few minutes, you know. Just mm. come with the credit card and you can start that in a few minutes. And uh, imagine that you have this seasonality, you know, like you are working uh, uh, in retail and you have this big Black Friday event and suddenly you go from like few servers to hundreds of servers because you need to do that actually in space of just that period of time. And with the, the cloud, you can just actually add those servers to your existing infrastructure. No hassle. And then there is this agility, and this is maybe probably one of the overlooked uh, aspects of cloud computing today, because people look at TCU, look at the cost, and look maybe at uh, this elasticity, which is pretty much well-known. But the agility is how like uh, cloud um, transformed this area of helping developers and users go there faster. They don't actually focus on the heavy lifting uh, related to infrastructure, maybe on how to set up like this kind of platforms or software, but rather actually have this in managed way, uh, either as a service or as a managed service, or maybe a SaaS software as a service, where actually developers, users, and different personas actually can just go and start focusing on what it matters for the business, you know, what is the different business differentiator, basically. I don't like uh, pass my time maybe installing Kafka server or maybe Hadoop server or this like uh, Oracle instance. I go right to the goal. What do I need for my application and maybe my business differentiator? And this will save like hours and hours of engineering work and uh, integration work which translates into more agile business and faster time to market. That's one of the most important aspects to cloud computing today and why maybe every company should look at that. Yeah, amazing. Makes sense. Uh, and following up question, that's kind of drifting off what I wanted to ask you. I, I, want, I would like to do a kind of a retrospective of your career, what you've been doing, like just overview of like key, key moments in your career. But um. Uh, Continuing on, on that path of just cloud, just out of curiosity, um, do you feel that um, architects and uh, I would call them maybe machine learning engineers or people who are like um, ops, ops guy, data ops, and so on, um, DevOps, uh, ML ops, LLM ops, all those roles, it feels like for for people who just entered the industry, um, it's it's of like um certifications cloud directly there are not many opportunities to go build a hadoop cluster um on a client uh, instances maybe there are but i would guess less than uh, building things in the cloud so do you feel that having this hands-on experience just knowing knowing um receiving the server building up making sure the resources allocate correctly and having felt that pain do you feel that it makes you a better architect, better engineer, better um, working with different pipelines and so on? And do you feel that, would you recommend for people to just try it once or maybe like dig into it? I mean, there is definitely lesson learned there, you know, like uh, going from there to more cloud uh, 
uh, and agile environment changes a bit things and definitely you know like uh, yeah uh, you go from a model of deploying infrastructure that is slow uh, lots of pains and you learn a lot of lessons mm. most of those lessons to be honest are transferable to the cloud right? you know like uh, when you go and work on any server service or maybe set up a platform or application you must always think about what should i do for disaster recovery for reliability availability and all those questions mm. however now you have the tools you are equipped with the, with the tools to do it faster and think about it faster mm. so yeah you gain time you go in efficiency but the questions are more or less there and you have to think about them now whether I recommend for people that just started with this kind of, um, let's say, say uh, topics today and uh, in order to go back and do it how it used to do, uh, to be, um, I'm not sure that's a good idea because, you know, like uh, computer science is advancing all the time and things are coming more and more and you don't have to do everything in order to get to, to learn the lessons. I mean, sometimes you need to focus on what is there in the market. So what are people using, companies, what are they using? And you need to adapt to those technologies and to those tools. Maybe you do your homework about how to do things more efficiently in good way. But uh, yeah, definitely, uh, unless you are required actually in your experience or in your work to go and deploy Hadoop infrastructure uh, or at like on-premise infrastructure, my recommendation probably spend that time on learning more about new technologies, more things that are uh, like, let's say, trendy in the market and can help you um, get jobs, can help you get uh, new roles and maybe also help companies in that area. Hmm, amazing. All right. Coming back on your career. Um, so can you share a, a kind of a, a quick retrospective of what you've been doing, how it started and uh, where you're at, even though you kind of share this last step? Yeah. So, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I started in academia with the PhD. So we did mm -hmm. this PhD between 2010 and 2013 uh, at INRIA. This is a national institute of research in France. And it was uh, this center in particular was located in Rennes, which is in Brittany, the west of France. And I had this uh, amazing opportunity, actually, to work in this um, environment to look further into the future and start focusing right away on data at, in the cloud. And my mm -hmm. dissertation was basically about that. Maybe I was specialized a bit more into uh, data consistency, but basically the big topic was data in the cloud. Uh, it's there where actually I still remember I got this allocation for using AWS, uh, the cloud at the time. It was back in 2011. It's wow. not AWS you probably know today. Uh, it was like uh, EC2, S3, uh, SQS, and a few services. And yeah, I got this uh, allocation for two years with the amount of $7,500 that uh, got me. Uh, this chance to work on AWS and discover this amazing actually platform that could uh, help customers in the future develop more into uh, a cloud world. And there also, just for the anecdote as well, that, that, that it was the time for Hadoop 1, you know, or maybe even less than one. And it was really earlier, uh, earlier version of Hadoop with the architecture based on job tracker and a lot of failures. And these were like big data early days. Wow. And yeah, uh, it was uh, funny to see how the... Uh, we got from there to here today. Uh, I remember also during that PhD that uh, I had this... Uh, 
uh, one of my uh, favorite papers that I uh, actually cited in some of my research work. And it was the paper about Apache Spark. You know, it was by this group of Berkeley and <laughs> one guy called Matei Zaharia that was doing a PhD back in 2009, uh, 2009 that published a, a, a paper that says, okay, we can do better than Hadoop. We have this thing that we call Spark that can do things in memory. And yeah. So from there, you know, like uh, I worked uh, into several projects with the companies like NEDs in the frontier, a bit of academia and industry. So we applied bit research uh, and uh, the latest trends from research into, uh, into industry and help uh, in this R&D project, NEDs, build uh, data lakes, uh, also uh, this initiative around um, smart meters, you know, electricity or power smart meters and how to mm. analyze, collect data and everything. Um, I worked also for two years as a freelancer you now, uh, uh, where basically had one customer, which was Air France KLM. And there I had this opportunity actually to work in a production environment, deploying this uh, uh, huge Hadoop clusters, ensuring their availability with Hortonworks. And uh, we have this like um, um, Air France KLM. So this is like the the aviation company or the travel company in France and the Netherlands with sites over France and Netherlands. And it was amazing also to be able to participate in this team and provide data as a service there. So it was basically an internal cloud at Air France KLM and we worked in to providing these data services. But since then, I joined back uh, in 2021 AWS, where I worked as a solution architect um, with focus on analytics. I was covering services like uh, AWS Blue, EMR, Lake Formation, Athena, and Redshift, working with various customers in the MEA region. You know, and these uh, are customers in different segments of different sizes, uh, from London to Dubai, actually covering all that area, uh, and help them actually solve their data problems and AI problems every day. Hmm. And back uh, in 2023, since July, I joined uh, Databricks, the data and AI company, to work more as a solution architect uh, covering um, um, enterprise uh, customers in France and uh, with focus on data and AI, actually, and all those advancements and uh, trends around LLMs as well. So, yeah, that's just in a few minutes uh, a bit my career and uh, how I got from a PhD to Databricks. <laughs> we'll get back on many many of what you commented a uh, very impressive track um and uh yeah so many questions from here uh i think the the, the audience could ask themselves like how can i ask I, I wish i could ask all the questions that should be asked <laughs> um let us know in the comments if you if i missed on uh we'll uh we'll make sure to, to answer them afterwards you said something super interesting about the the genesis of Hadoop. And that's that's crazy to me because, because in, in less than around 10 years, things have changed so much. And well, that's true in general in technology, but when you think um, of just... So uh, the first versions of, of Hadoop, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like HDFS, Yarn, and MapReduce, correct? And with Hive. Was that, was that the stack at the beginning, beginning, or was it less, or was it? 
it, it was even more basic than that. You know, <laughs> actually, Jan was a big improvement of Hadoop, you know. <laughs> so before Jan, there was this thing called uh, the job tracker, you know, this okay. single point of failure that make actually deployment at scale a nightmare, you know, like, uh, uh, and there was HDFS, MapReduce, and basically this MapReduce based on this uh, job tracker API. And just after like Hive and uh, Pig, this solution called also Pig, that's the big yeah. or the core of Hadoop at the time. And mm -hmm. Jan actually came as MapReduce too, and that was already a big improvement at the time. <laughs> mm. And it's it's funny that you mentioned that it, it really shows like for how long you've been in the field because because a lot of the time we can hear like oh yes when when we went from MapReduce to Spark that was awesome but you're speaking before MapReduce and that's uh, that's super interesting the fact that you you had uh, AWS access uh, in uh, in uh, 2000 was it 10 2010 11 yeah 2011 11. um that's uh, very interesting. Uh, maybe a few things to ask uh, around that. Um, you mentioned academia and and business, and, and you said that during your career you've been at the at the limit. You you mentioned that you've done your PhD. Um, what do you like most working with users, with clients, and working in academia? And how does the both combine to make you a better professional? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean. Both have advantages and uh, something that are less fun compared to the other. But uh, I'd like to say maybe in academia, you know, like um, the, the metrics, the goals you are working towards are completely different. You know, you are working to solve problems for sure, but you are working more to publish, to advance, let's say science here, the technology to be more honest so, and precise. And you basically specialize, you specialize a lot, you know. You take like a hard problem that the industry probably is facing, something usually practical, try to imagine like solution for it that probably can be deployed tomorrow, but in most cases it's not. It's not going to be deployed tomorrow. It's not going to put into uh, work tomorrow, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, like let's say uh, Spark. Spark was introduced in 2009 and starts really be used uh, from 2014, you know. And there, you know, like you specialize, you go very deep, like technically very deep. You maybe get obsessed over the problem and you work on very something very like narrow, you know, like you take mm -hmm. small problem and you spend time and time mastering it and finding solution to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe you will have results that you publish in conferences and that's your ultimate goal, you know, like uh, and then maybe you, uh, publish that work in projects and get known because of that and so on. However, that's very amazing uh, intellectually, you know, like it's stimulating, it's challenging. Uh, you are working on like very hard problems, to be honest, and you have maybe some colleagues are that can be the most brilliant in the area and in the world, basically. But maybe th what is missing is you miss that interaction with the customer, you know. And when you go to business or industry, you are working with customers. And when you work with customers, you are really having that satisfaction to work towards something that is really useful, you know. It solves a business problem. You will feel it, you know, like if you are working for Air France, for instance, 
that, that, that's metrics around, let's say, uh, airplanes, you know, like uh, maybe for predictive maintenance or maybe that's uh, like to help them, um, uh, let's say, uh, have a better forecast for travelers and, uh, uh, and so on. So these satisfaction of solving real business problems and maybe help companies achieve like their goals is also never uh, overestimated. It's always good to, to have that feeling. Uh, maybe the challenges are less, to be honest, and um, usually problems you are working to solve are less complex than when I used to do, for instance, in academia, but more satisfying and more, let's say, uh, broad compared to academia because we're focusing on a broad area of technologies, of architecture. Do you think more about solving those problems for the customer? It will depend really on what is existing for them. It's really practical and that's always satisfying. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's two different worlds. Maybe they overlap technically and on the technology and how to solve the problems, but uh, ultimately they diverge on the goals you set for yourself and maybe set for you by your organization as well. Hmm. Makes sense. Well, I'm really impressed um, with anyone I've talked um, who's more, um, uh, uh, his or her more in academia. It's like you're you you have your eyes on the edge of the state of the art constantly and you're trying to push that and then when you go on a business environment and you and you and you understand like the codes and how it works and so on it really feels that for except for like companies such as OpenAI Databricks AWS where like technology is really advanced and people are are very good, very advanced. Some people are working in academia for these companies. But it really feels that when someone have a very deep interest in academia in the beginning, but then they solve business problems, it, it is really a, a, a bridge, an interesting bridge from my perspective, whereas we have an eye on the, on the state of the art of things, our latest papers, but we also have in mind what we want to implement for the clients, for the business. Most of the time, it isn't as complicated as you said. And like when you push so far in academia, then you have so much power to solve business problem. It feels like that to me. Obviously, there are like some differences and some people in academia don't want to mm, go more in the business side. But do you want to comment on that? I definitely bring a very uh, interesting uh, point there. And I'll add something to that as well, you know. Like when make that transition, and this is one of the first things I understand early when I start to work on the frontier of uh, technology or uh, academia and uh, business, is you have this view, maybe holistic view about what's happening in data and AI, and you are excited. You are always looking for the latest releases, what the latest problem solved, what they release like uh, every like big vendor in the area and so on. And you immediately want to apply that to uh, solve those business problems, you know. But the reality is the business is not keeping up with that, you know. It's not always at that uh, edge. And it, it may be, as you mentioned, true for some, like, digital native companies or maybe some startups. But, like, for big companies, they always have this uh, technological debt and they don't follow that. 
uh, that can create frustration, to be honest. And more of, or less, I mean, you want to solve problems and you have your vision for it because you used to have this liberty when you were at academia. Then you come and you hit the production, they tell you, no, this is not approved by our size. This is not a solution we bought. This is not a solution we intend to deploy, you know, and so on. So you have to work with what's approved, what is there, and those business limitations. And to be honest, those are more political issues sometimes within companies uh, are more like uh, organization-based limitation that you have to uh, work around. And obviously, you have to answer sometimes to architects when you are beginning. Maybe you are one of the architects, but then you have to answer to stakeholders. Always have business limitation, technology limitation, and you have to navigate and work through that. Those frontiers do not usually exist in academia, I mean, from technology-wise. And you have to navigate through that and maybe work with the frustration. Now, what uh, you need to understand sometimes and maybe um, uh, keep in mind when you're making that transition is how to do that while not losing that sharp mind of yours you trained over the years in academia, you know. Uh, you, you develop this sense of, like, capturing uh, new technologies, new concepts very quickly. You are, like, always looking for that. And when at some point when you can't use that, you may lose that, you know. So the, 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 you, you always have to find this equilibrium between actually doing the work at product in production, uh, helping companies solve the problems, but at the same time, keep in mind What's coming on? Now, sometimes when it will go like this, pitch small idea to the team, to the stakeholders and start maybe preparing a POC a few months in advance, maybe try to help them look a bit in the future. And sometimes if you don't, you can't work over those limitations anyway, still keep that for yourself, for your career, for your growth. And maybe one day this will come uh, at your current job or maybe the next where you can help uh, your company um, see bigger maybe and work bigger at your scale, of course. But yeah, that's one of the elements of frustration when you switch from academia to uh, to, to, to business and industry for sure. Hmm. That's a super interesting point. It feels like sometime like, we have an idea of, okay, this is great. This is game changer. We need to do that. But for a lot of people on the business perspective, when we're not sharing with people um, who are also uh, in academia and have a, a common understanding of what's going on, it won't make sense until they can just see it or touch it or like do something mm -hmm. with it, like you mentioned, uh, a POC. Um, and that's a very interesting point. And like you mentioned, we can always play around with things, break things so that we can quickly put together something that people can see, touch, play. And, um, and by doing so, uh, it uh, enhances one's career, but it also um, gives way, way more interpretability and observability from a human perspective based on like the, the roadmap, stakeholders, and so on. That's super interesting. Uh, I'm going to pursue with a question that goes in the same direction, which is... Um, what makes a great solution architect or in general you, you've had multiple roles in your career and you had uh, uh, a lot of experiences that you can comment and on um so i would be very curious um from your perspective also you've been you've been for a long time in the field so i'm super curious about um how you how you've seen it evolved and where you 
where do you think it's going? So that's something that I'll ask you later. But coming back on a great professional, um, let's say solution architect, but if you want to add more roles that you had in the past, I would love also to hear that. How to be great? Uh, is it cost in mind? Is it like building box constantly, being on the edge of, I know what's going on, state of the art, and I know what are the pains, and I know how to combine both? But like, I'm sure there are way more things that comes to mind uh, in terms of being great. Um, so do you want to comment on that? How to be great? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a great question, actually. I mean, a, a solution architect is a broad term for roles that are more or less similar, but can diverge in many ways. Um, for instance, like there are like more solution architects that are more, let's say, close to sales cycle. And some are more technical, maybe do deep dives with customers and help them solve solutions. And those are big, two different roles, to be honest, and uh, can be a bit, uh, have different responsibilities and different impact anyway. But uh, for me, it's always good. And that's uh, probably another thing that I didn't mention early from the difference between academia and the business is um, it's not always about the technology, you know. It's about the the business and the, the, the business problems you want to solve, you know. Customers, in most times, uh, understand business more than technology, you know. Like, uh, uh, in our roles, if you are a bit more technical, you are always excited about the technology, you know. Like, let's give the example of LLMs and what's all what's happening around LLMs can easily... Uh, get into that area and get very excited about the technology. We have libraries opening every uh, week. We have models uh, developed every uh, month or so. A lot of advancements happening in very close time. And if you go to the customer more more than often and speak about the technology and you are excited, they may get your excitement and uh, maybe they understand if they come from this technology background, but it's all about the business. Uh, Companies are here to work on business differentiators to solve uh, these business problems and basically enhance their products, their uh, sales cycles and so on. And your role actually is to find that right balance, to understand your customer, you know, in order to help them, you need to understand, to to understand their business, what makes the difference for them, and then understanding their place, how you can give this technology or maybe these tools that you are working on, or maybe these features that are great, how can they they help them bring business value to, to, to their organizations? And they, th- th- that's probably the most important things that you need to capture there. And, um, well, the market actually have been evolving for several years, but the role is more or less the same. The technology changes, uh, the way we do technology is changing fundamentally, but the way companies do business is usually more or less uh, uh, evolving at slower pace, you know, and you need to understand that business uh, value and outcomes that could be helpful to a customer. Uh, now, even if you are not in a solution architecture role, even if you are like in IT and uh, working with the, uh, uh, your, your organization to work towards that goal, always this, maybe be more excited about what the technology can bring to you rather than the technology itself. Okay, there is this new feature that is coming, maybe this new model, how it can help me solve business problems. What is the value I'm going to get from that? And as as soon as you understand that, it's 
gives you more, let's say, versatility and help you actually be more comfortable bringing this to stakeholders to help you actually work work uh, towards a bigger impact. And that's at the end what is uh, important. Mm. I love it. It makes me think of the make it seem effortless phrase. So <laughs> what do I mean by that? It's like, it's awesome. And for someone more technical, we need to have... Uh, this vision on the latest things, play around with it, build things around. But the magic happens when we listen to the problems that we want to solve and we're able to apply what we've learned. But the magic is not from what we've learned. That that does, like, no one care. And I feel like having an exactly. academic mindset, like, when we move towards... Um, when we move a, an academic mindset towards a business, then we really try to understand the um, like the frontier of the business, like we would with um, like uh, any any field that we're investigating in. And I feel that this is super interesting because I can be the best um, building solutions if I don't have a clear way or a clear path to understand why I'm going to build this and and what metrics are important because maybe most of the time some clients aren't mature even in like measuring the right things, let's say. And so by exactly. not measuring the right things, even though I do the best job ever and I add the most value, if it is not taken into account because it's biased or it haven't been said properly based on like um, the, the main important things of the business, then it is worth nothing. So... I don't know. Exactly. I, drift, I drift a little bit, but I think I think it's, it relates to to what you were sharing. Um, Definitely. Definitely. It's how you measure impact. That's a very important point. How you measure impact, you know. You are solving a business problem and you want to measure that impact. And how this solution you are proposing to me that is cool, that maybe appeared yesterday and it's uh, everyone is talking about, how can that help me solve my business problem? And if I want to do that, how I quantify that, how I measure that, if I can't do it properly, then probably uh, either I'm not using that right or maybe it's not useful in this case and mm. why spend money and the efforts uh, around that. Mm. So definitely the, the, the conversation starter is the business value, how you quantify it, how you quantify the impact, how you measure that and how can you put this technology at work and these solutions and um, uh, tools at work in order to achieve that goal. That, mm. that, that's probably uh, the main thing to do before starting a project. Awesome. Uh, I think we could uh, uh, dive maybe a little bit deeper on, on one of your experiences or maybe you can combine mm. a different of, of them. But could you share with us... Um, a time or times where you worked with clients and like what did you do to set up in advance like the metrics you were going to use like what success would mean like how would you go about understanding the the client solution then how would you go about deploying thinking process of like what are we going to do from a technical perspective the fun part let's say for some people mm. <laughs> for many people that are more on the technical side mm. Could you share maybe on that, like concrete example, or maybe just high level of different clients, mm. like lessons mm. that you've learned uh, um, mm. to, to build this roadmap? Yeah, I mean, usually, especially let's take, for instance, when I work as a solution architect, maybe before with AWS or now with Databricks, 
is like when you start a new project or maybe a customer is starting a new project and uh, want to solve something. The first usually a uh, few uh, questions you ask is around the business, you know, what is the business? What is the, what, what they are trying to solve and how they are expecting to do that. More often than less is like the customer is not starting a business from scratch. He, 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 they have something, you know, in place, something maybe to, uh, running with legacy technology as well. And the real question is how we make that better, how we modernize that. And if we do that, what, what, what do we get in the process? So the first thing to do, and this is maybe uh, half of the work, is actually to try to understand that, you know, like try to really scope it, you know, like what is the business, what they are trying to do, what their objective and what they have existing today and why it is uh, painful. Take that pain, uh, uh, quantified maybe if it can be or at least understand it, you know, and then try to uh, um, propose this architecture that helps solve this according to the key metrics sometimes, you know, like TCO, for instance, this can be a problem for many, many companies, you know, like uh, uh, I'm running today on the cloud and I'm running this legacy uh, um, application and it's costing me a lot, millions in a year. And uh, uh, I'm wondering if I can reduce that, uh, that bill. Can we help with that? Then what is the problem you want to solve? You know, like, uh, for instance, for customers, some customers, okay, right now I'm working, uh, I'm doing things a certain way, and I have, like, the updates every uh, day or maybe uh, every two weeks, but I'm wondering if my business my business actually could benefit if I get a real-time response, you know, maybe sometimes... Uh, uh, every hour or in some cases I got some customers actually that were looking for responses under the 100 milliseconds for instance and that could have an impact on the business in terms of like uh, um, money generated like uh, revenue generated and uh, in terms of also of the customer trust and uh, you know you could, it could work backward from that backward from the customer understand the customer needs and work backward from that then comes the technology here you know like if you are working streaming for instance you can think about uh, kafka a managed service for kafka for instance with something like spark streaming uh, low latency or maybe even flink or uh, and put the technology of the service of that and design the architecture listen to their pain points show them how they can help the pain points and see the technical limitation whether they're the, this is feasible or not because sometimes you get excited about the technology you overlook the limitation and that's something that as a solution architect for instance should really start with what are the limitations uh, can my technology that i'm working on help really solve that if it can we can do it if we can't what are the workarounds would the workarounds work for the customer would they solve their problems if, if yes, yes, let's propose that to the customer and then help them plan because, you know, defining the architecture and scoping and uh, defining everything is one thing and then executing is another, you know. And you need to help the customer also plan this execution and help them actually get in the right path for the execution as well. And that will be a win-win situation for everyone. And uh, yeah, but the secret here always starts from the business requirements and technical requirements from the stakeholder, whether it's a customer, whether it's another organization or whether another team in your organization. Makes sense. Um, I'm thinking also if, um, let's say for a client, uh, we start, we define a roadmap and so on. It feels to me that the iterative process of 
um, each time, <laughs> speaking of AWS, I think it's on the Lex Freeman podcast, Jeff Bezos said, um, and he talked about his day one thinking. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, I really like this uh, day one thinking ID um, because it feels that, okay, maybe at a certain date and time, we'll have IDs of everything that we can do. But when we work very close uh, with business and when we are from a technical perspective of things, then we have so much more insights because we understand way better like what's everything and we have the the map and and the more time we spend around it the better we understand the map of what's really there and what can we do and what can we not do i feel that from this perspective there is this iterative process of reprioritizing and like you said like okay does it okay i have it daily do i really want to have it real time or i saw that this data is there and we don't use it and we could now that we've built what we've built we could do something that would be um like have a low cost in terms of like developments but maybe a higher impact than the roadmap that we pre predict and it feels that most of the time um like roadmaps are being set and we just go <laughs> go 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 but it feels like if we combine an iterative process and with reprioritization um it has a lot of value and potential. Uh, those are just assumptions of mine. Um, what What do you think on, on this on this point? Uh, you are right to bring that actually, and uh, yeah, it's uh, finally an agility process. You know, you don't mm -hmm. have to be too rigid actually in order not to lose in agility, but always you have to set the perimeters also. You know, because sometimes you can go like outside the scope, and you are interested in doing a lot of things, and finally you do don't do even a viable minimal product you know and uh, for me at least you know like uh, also another expression from amazon and jeff bezos is one way two way doors uh, um, approach you know like a, a one way door approach is when you make a decision and you can get back you know like uh, yeah. if you decide for instance to do something and you can't overdo that decision you know mm. that's something that sticks with you you know and if you get it wrong it can have a catastrophic uh, impact for, uh, for for you and your stakeholders, you know. So those decisions you need to think about very hard, you know. You, you make sure you make that decision, those decisions right. Now the uh, two-way uh, door decision are decisions that you can um, overdo quickly uh, and it doesn't cost you that much or anything at, uh, at all. Mm -hmm. And those where you can get that freedom, you know, like, okay, today I'm doing uh, something, but if I change it uh, or decide to change it later, I can do that. That Those decisions shouldn't take um, your time, they shouldn't bother you that much because actually it's easy to retract them and mm. help you with the flexibility as well. So, yeah, I mean, when you decide the project, maybe you uh, uh, there are some hard lines that you need to decide to stick with. Then you have this agility process. Uh, and you mentioned something also as well. Sometimes also technology, you know, like you used to do something and now you have the technology that help you do something that you couldn't do in the past, you know, and that could be also a drive for your decision as well as uh, uh, the project moves, you know, like for instance, in the past, we couldn't do this like under the 100 millisecond uh, decision in real time with the large scale systems. Now we can do that. 
if we can apply it, can we do that for our business? Would it be impactful? Would it be good? And sometimes also the technology can help you drive decision, decisions in, in that regard. But yeah, I mean, I'm not the best person, let's say, to speak about uh, agility and uh, uh, like those agility approaches. But definitely, uh, yeah, there are lots of rooms for flexibility and improvement there. Mm, awesome. All right. I'm going to ask you some insights on... Um on your view of the evolution, uh, evolution of the field of uh, um, technology in general, so cloud-related, but like, for example, um, before MapReduce, then Spark arrive. So I'd like to ask you about what are like the, the key moments that you've experienced in your career where you, were, uh, where you had a wow effect on new concepts? And what are you looking today as of the next wows? Oh, yeah. The next wows are like a bit complicated, to be <laughs> honest. But uh, yeah, th there are a lot of wow moments uh, there uh, in my career. So yeah, uh, I started, as I mentioned, back in 2010. And the first wow was like this uh, first era of NoSQL, if you remember. Like we used to do these databases, RDBMS, relational databases for like two decades. Uh, we didn't know anything else. And uh, mm -hmm. we st stuck with that model. And suddenly we opened this new era for NoSQL, for instance, with Amazon DynamoDB and how they like deploy worldwide. And uh, a lot of theories also came from academia at that moment, actually, mm -hmm. actually like the CAP theorem like whether uh, we have this availability, performance, and consistency constraints, and we can't have uh, the three at the same time, so we need to sacrifice something in order to get better things. And that was the first moment where we, like, it was disruptive. I mean, we were thinking one way, and we switched to another way. And that created, actually, um, a new, like, direction that benefited greatly, Uh, people in that an AI world. Mm -hmm. Later on came Hadoop, you know, and it was started with Map uh, reduced from Google back in 2003, their the famous paper. Mm -hmm. That also changed a lot of things, you know, like we used to think sequentially for data, you know, we don't know how to do things uh, really quickly to, 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 to have this large scale uh, parallelization of uh, data processing. And with Map reduce, we made that simple relatively simple that suddenly you know suddenly we were in the era of sitting analyzing few uh, uh, gigs maybe terabytes of data and suddenly we knew how to process and get value from petabytes of data you know and that was a huge you know like uh, suddenly we had these mines of gold uh, of data that we can uh, exploit and get value from which changed a lot of things Um, then there was like a concept that came later on, the concept of data lake, you know, the data lake came and uh, suddenly we say, okay, bring it all, bring it all. Let's take <laughs> all structured and unstructured data. We have one place to put it there, you know, and uh, we, 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 we figure out how to get value from it later. But anything you have, let's put it there in the data lake. And that was an amazing uh, thing, actually, that happened uh, compared to data warehouses and databases in the past. So, for, so those mines of data, we now have Hadoop, we have systems like Hive, like Presto, that allow us to analyze those petabytes of data. But we didn't know how to uh, govern that. You know, quickly it became complicated. It became like... Uh, Some folks called called it then data swamps, you know, like uh, where you can't find anything. It, it became more complex. 
And suddenly we found ourselves in the same challenges that we found in databases earlier. That's including data governance and data governance and access issues. But later on, you know, like um, the companies realize, I mean, Hadoop is not a replacement for a data warehouse, you know, MapReplus is not a replacement of that. Uh, even with the proper governance on Hadoop, you still have fragmented systems, you know. You have like data sitting in databases, data sitting in data warehouses, and data sitting in data lakes. These are uh, exploited sometimes with the same personas, but sometimes with different personas, whether it's data scientists, data engineers, or data analysts. And we end up with silos everywhere, you know, like uh, in data uh, city, data silos, you know, like fragmented. You have uh, different systems hosting different data. Governance that is siloed, which is a risk for any organization on like how to give the proper access and ensure people are not accessing maybe sensitive data or maybe not risking getting data accessed by anyone who shouldn't have. And then um, we have this business and uh, persona silos as well, you know, like uh, uh, data analysts and the data uh, scientists uh, can't work together. And uh, sometimes if they work together, it could be good for them, you know, like uh, they, they also work with different tools. So we have these tools, uh, silos, uh, data scientists would like more to work with Python libraries, uh, data analysis used to BI tools and so on. So... Finally, we uh, try to simplify the big data and the era, but it still ended up with a complex ecosystem with different uh, silos and different uh, fragmentation of systems. Maybe the other wow moment for me was the lake house. You know, the lake house, a term coined by Databricks, but now used by many companies, is when we propose this uh, system actually to eliminate these silos, gather data, no more uh, complex ETL, you, you, data is sitting in the same place, but you can have the different workloads on the same data in the same place. Whether you are data scientist or data analyst, you do in uh, BI, you do in uh, machine learning and uh, data engineering, you can work all in the same platform on the same data without losing any benefits, either from data lake or data warehousing. And that's another amazing moment, you know. And uh, um, th this is a trend today. So, for instance, uh, Databricks coined that term and started it. But we have other companies actually implementing their own uh, lake house technologies. And this is something that we are seeing more and more uh, as a trend, even from hyperscalers like Microsoft. And uh, this concept actually makes um, and... Uh, me personally, I saw the, um, the change in the ease of use and in decrease of agility and uh, efficiency when you switch to a data lake concept, you know. No more complex ETL, you can govern everything in one place uh, and uh, give access to the right persona to handle the right data without having to make uh, data copies and they can collaborate in one environment. That's actually remove a lot of barriers and a lot of uh, hours of data engineering and integrations that could be, uh, let's say, complex and um, let's say uh, a challenge for any organization, to be honest. Um, how are things going? So there are lots of interesting, actually, patterns for uh, from architecture and platform point of view that are coming. Uh, one of them is the concept of data mesh, you know, and this is true for uh, large organizations, you know, like they, they have complex uh, uh, organigram put in place. They have this line of businesses and they want actually to get the better of data uh, and value from data across organization in a collaborative yet a safe uh, approach. 
And this paradigm that we can maybe talk about later on uh, can help them actually solve these kind of issues. The other thing, and for me, this is a huge, and this is something that we should actually tackle uh, today rather than tomorrow, is the unification of governance and usage between data and AI, you know, because we are yet creating another silo, you know, between data and AI. You have a technology, a platform usually to handle data at any organization, and then you have the tool that you use, you use for doing AI and ML, you know. And sometimes get, get switching between the two environments of data scientists with the data engineer, with the data analyst is not easy. You need to move data around. You need to give accesses. You need to uh, govern the accesses and controlling the accesses between models, uh, machine learning models, and then data itself uh, in two different places. And we are creating yet another uh, silos that could prevent uh, companies from getting value quicker. And the unification of data and AI, I think, is something crucial that uh, many uh, service providers should focus on uh, and where you ideally can have one environment to manage all, you know, like uh, both in terms of integrations and uh, uh, access control as well, you know. And that's uh, something we uh, should be looking uh, at very closely. The other thing also is the, the moving to production. Today we have DevOps uh, or the, um, DevSecOps or uh, we have DataOps and we have MLOps. Those tools are like really uh, useful and necessary to get like things work in production because at the end of the day, you need to put things in efficient, robust way in production. And if we can find a way also to unify, integrate those tools together and those approaches together, to be uh, rather native than doing some uh, uh, integration work or patching work. That, that, that's something also that could be very helpful for uh, uh, advancing this area in the future. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, you covered many super interesting yeah. topics. Uh, yeah, Lake House. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong. So I'd like to come back on different points um, and, and I'll be brief, but... Uh, Uh, I'd like to go back on the leg house, on the data mesh, on the data catalog in general, and on the AI ML versus all the data. Correct me about the um, leg house. So to me, a leg house is a place where we have the data and we can also build warehouses on top of it. And uh, then we kind of just take from a, a data lake house to warehouses and to then put uh, data maybe in the data catalog or so on, but um, could you maybe correct me on the lake house ID? Yeah, lake house is a concept actually to unify both the data lake and the data warehouse. You know, like companies and many of them still do today have like on one place the, the data lake where you have structured and structured data mostly uh, Uh, for like uh, systems like Hadoop, MapReduce, Spark, and so on. And then on the other hand, they have these clean data warehouses uh, based on some proprietary technology usually. This is the enterprise data warehouse where you put your data after you clean it, you know, uh, in the small data sets that are not like uh, very, very big, uh, to be honest, cleaned and used whether enterprise-wide or maybe uh, for a, a specific business. And then between the, t the two, Usually, you need a complex ETL that copies data from the data lake to the data warehouse, sometimes return the data back to the, the, the data lake. 
and then have two modes of governance, one based on like what's in the data lake, whether it's files or tables, and the other is specifically and strictly dedicated to the data warehouse. That creates these uh, silos I was talking about. So uh, some personas are using one, not the other, or maybe trying to access, but they don't know about, they don't have access to. So this is a data governance uh, for fraction between the two uh, as well. Uh, they have different catalogs and they have different storage, you know, different data formats. So the leak house is to say, okay, rather than making two of these systems and making the integration of the two very complex, what if we can have one storage, one place that give us like the opportunity to store structured and structured data with formats like table formats like Delta, Delta Lake, uh, that is open, open source. And then let's have like any kind of workloads that we want to have working on those data that could mm. be available enterprise-wide with mm. control access, of course. Mm -hmm. And then... Yes, on the same data, we don't make two copies, just one copy of data. The data analyst that do BI and needs a data warehouse can use that with the proper technology. Uh, for instance, Databricks proposed a technology that is called uh, Photon and the Delta Engine that gives you the best performance there, you know, out there. So it's not different from the performance you get from data warehouse. Uh, in many cases, it's even better. And you can do your work on the same data that is used for machine learning for other personas. Those are the personas that use Python libraries, maybe use Spark, PySpark, and maybe do even uh, more uh, complex stuff. And they also have access data with uh, access control as well. They work together. And then they can collaborate between them because now they are working on the same data in the same platform. The collaboration easy is easier, you know. And then uh, also think about how like you, to provide tools to simplify ETL processes if you need to do something to the data engineering. This makes all your personas working in the same place on one storage that is uh, uh, open source, that is the trend today. So we have table formats, including Delta Lake and maybe Iceberg and Hoodie. And you have like one governance. And this is, I can't stress the importance of this enough, you know, like one governance to uh, have all your workloads on the same data. And this is like, gives you visibility, gives you uh, uh, real access control and help you actually understand your business better because of this. So this concept actually is now the trend. Uh, many companies are following in the footsteps of, uh, of Databricks to provide their own uh, lake houses. And this is actually um, what's helped companies today uh, like remove those barriers related to these silos, whether they are data silos or people silos. Amazing. Yeah, and it really feels like this is where we're going forward, like a unified yeah. solution. And Databricks has the best, to my perspective, like advanced mm. on like unifying everything from the mm. lake house to the data catalog to like uh, ML and mm. AI. Uh, maybe you'll be able to... Yeah. To comment, do you want uh, to comment on that? Like, how does Databricks yeah, unify those yeah. two parts? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so Databricks released what we call Unity Catalog. This is a, an amazing technology, to be honest. I mean, how recent uh, is it's it? A uh, how recent I think is it's Unity since uh, 2021, I think, or 2022, to be honest. Uh, mm. It's something that came as in a, a replacement and enhancement of the old legacy Hive Metastore. So mm -hmm. it's uh, yeah. like uh, Unity Catalog to unify, actually, for instance, for Databricks, uh, Databricks your catalog uh, company-wide for all your workspaces. You can have a big visibility on your data, whether uh, sitting in the... Uh, uh, 
uh, in your account and you have like different catalogs. So you have uh, um, a hierarchical level between catalog, database or schema and table. And like you can define more catalogs in one central meta store where you can have visibility over all your data assets. What's amazing about this technology is unified governance for data uh, in your data lake. Uh, so you have one governance in one place uh, to control all the accesses, give the freedom to uh, users to have their own catalog if you want to to experiment and so on. And it helps you actually manage, for instance, your uh, um, development uh, qualification and uh, production environments better because of this uh, uh, definition. But what is more amazing about this Unity catalog is the integration uh, of the governance of AI and ML. Now you can add models also to Unity Catalog, and then you unify the governance, not just for data, whether it's data warehouse, data lake in one lake house, but you can have also your models governed the same way, you know, uh, all in one platform. And that's a big breakthrough in terms of governance and uh, removing those barriers we were talking about. Amazing. And this is when data mesh comes into into uh, into the game where like we have all this data in the Unity's catalog, but the power of who have access to this data and who can give access to this data, correct me if I say anything wrong, huh? but uh, is uh, decentralized. And so the sales department will have an owner, the HR department will have an owner, the marketing department will have an owner, and all those owners can independently give access to specific parts of projects that they've developed that may be a project uh, salespeople, the team of data around salespeople um, because they worked on specific use case. But this use case could be very interesting to the marketing department to like do some cross of like some data that they've um, studied there. And so because it's decentralized, um, this is the power of data mesh, like having a marketplace of projects in the company make it super easy to, to find data, to retrieve data, retrieve uh, models, retrieve um, different things that uh, we've built along the way in the company would you add something about data mesh like what what why what do yeah. you like about data mesh and, and and am i correct kind of yeah the the concept of data mesh is really an interesting one and i think it's about time to have something like this you know so this in fact this decentralization is in fact very important to big organizations you know like with different line of businesses with different departments that they yeah. have this uh, fragmentation between them and they don't communicate and actually what you want to do is not just like to give them the ability to share but to govern as well you know so by creating a data owner and data products where a team or a department or a line of business is responsible of our, their data product, that could be in itself a lake house or data lake, you know. And they can do this actually in a way, autonomous way, uh, maybe with their data engineers, or maybe with their admins and make this data product. Then what is important also is the ability not just to have and to share this data with different line of businesses or different departments in order to get more value from data and help other teams get that value but also uh, and while doing it actually with zero copy this is a very important also maybe for different reasons you know for efficiency for cost but mostly also for um, energy inefficiency and so on 
So the ability to do that with zero copy is an important one, but also the ability to have uh, that uh, data products and assets discoverable within the company, you know. So the ability to anyone to come and say, okay, I'm looking for this kind of data, maybe even sometimes with the uh, natural language question or maybe with the keywords and looking for some kind of data and you see, hey, there is a line business in my organization I have no clue about is proposing this kind of data. Maybe it could uh, automatically ask them and ask for access. Maybe they can give me because I have a very uh, good business, uh, let's say, um, uh, purpose for doing so. And that adds a lot of value and efficiency to a, any organization and any uh, company. And I mean, there are challenges around building data mesh architectures today. The technology is getting there slower and slower, but uh, with steady uh, pace. But if we uh, look at some of the amazing technologies that we've seen uh, in the recent years, we are closer and closer to build a real uh, production-ready data mesh. Uh, for instance, um, I'll give just the example, for instance, of uh, Databricks because I'm working here today. You have the Unity catalog, which uh, uh, is enhanced with what we call at Databricks uh, the data intelligence engine that can help you actually discover the assets with natural language that can help you actually have uh, this layer of semantics uh, on top of uh, the Unity catalog. Of course, there are other solutions like uh, Colibra or open source like uh, Data Hub that can help you this uh, build this kind of catalogs. But also this technology that, in my opinion, should be, uh, uh, well, it is already open source and uh, adopted by many companies. It's called uh, Delta Sharing. It allows you actually to uh, share data um, with, with zero copy, but with uh, access control based on tokens and everything. Uh, and it could be a standard actually to making this kind of uh, exchange uh, and data sharing possible with the, the Delta Lake for uh, storage. And uh, it, it helps actually customers build uh, towards a more unified way, efficient way to share data. I mean, everywhere can build with it a multi-cloud solution very easily you can build with it a hybrid let's say on-prem cloud solution and it is the way for the future and the way to build an efficient data mesh to be honest mm, amazing love it uh, i would love to ask you more about uh, all those things but um uh, we're kind of at the end of the episode, so I have the three last questions for you, and I'm going to uh, ask you a question from a previous guest. Um, <laughs> so um, those first questions are really quick. Um, the first one, where can people know more about you? Like, do you post on LinkedIn? Do you have a blog? Do you have, uh, uh, like, where, where could people connect, reach out? Maybe you don't have anything. You What, what do you have going on? I invite people to uh, maybe follow me and contact with me on LinkedIn today. To be honest, I don't have uh, a personal blog. I used to publish uh, on the AWS blog in the future, in Databricks blogs, uh, blog posts, maybe in Medium as well. But yeah, of course, uh, I always welcome people to get in touch uh, over LinkedIn and maybe we have a good uh, discussion and conversation there. Uh, and uh, yeah, I would be happy to answer any question. Amazing. Uh, okay, two questions more. One included, uh, including the, the questions from a previous guest. So, do you have a message for the Let's Talk AI community? So for everyone who is still out there, by the way, thank you for staying uh, to the end with us. It has been a very extensive and uh, um, technical episode maybe, but I 
Uh, I enjoy so much this conversation and this is not every day that we can have uh, your kind of expertise uh, and uh, your your insights. So thanks again. Um, But do you have a message for um, everyone who is listening? It can be professional, it can be personal, it can be whatever you want. Yeah, I I would say this is our uh, exact exciting times to be in data and AI. There are lots of things happening, to be honest. This is really, really early days. This is really exciting times, especially for AI. And uh, yeah, I think we are in the time of reshaping this kind of uh, technology in the service of use cases and business. So sky is the limit. Try to learn try to uh, look at what's happening. Uh, you can find uh, just on LinkedIn, uh, amazing stuff happening every day, an amazing uh, imagination of use cases. And maybe try to yeah, uh, think about how you can uh, apply this technology to new things. I think we are in early days for that. We have this amazing technology uh, breakthrough since uh, ChatGPT and the LLMs and foundational models. And we don't know where to use them yet. Try to figure that out. This is actually the work of people like you. And uh, I think um, this uh, could result in an amazing use cases that we didn't even know about or think about when we started to think about the technology. Awesome. And that relates to what we mentioned earlier about agility and like thinking out of the box. Uh, kind of, exactly. whereas uh, adding uh, continuously value. Amazing. All right, we're going to the question guest. Um, so it's from Leon Gordon. Um, he's the CEO of uh, Onyx Data. And uh, basically the question goes about legislation and uh, regulation. So what are you doing or um, what do you think is important doing regarding regulation and compliance uh, around AI? What are things uh, you mentioned at the beginning that um, most of the time it was political um, decisions around data? So yeah, what what do you do uh, or what do you think we should be doing regarding this? Yeah, I think this is one of the fundamental questions that humanity as a whole should think about and answer in this uh, just few years because the technology is advancing in an incredible pace. To be honest, I'm not a legislator, so I will give my 2%, maybe a first recommendation for legislators. Get in touch with business guys, with technical guys. They could help with their, how they can imagine the technology. They know the technology the best, the limitation of it, what can what it can do, what it, it can't. But um, as uh, humans, I think sh- today we should really find the right equilibrium between not crippling on the technology advance- advancement. This is like had the potential to be very beneficial for uh, all uh, humanity, but at the same time, we have these fundamental rights that a human being should have, like privacy, like uh, uh, author rights, that we should think about. And this also may be a message to uh, all uh, um, uh, people working in AI technology and business to we also need to make this as a core 
let's say, concern for us to work towards actually how we can find mechanisms uh, uh, and methods to um, include this in our research and advance in this area uh, to be uh, incorporated actually in the technology to help actually uh, protect these rights, which is fundamental as well. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks. Thank you so much, Hussein, for coming on the show, for sharing uh, all your knowledge today. I had an amazing time and, and I wish you to, to have an amazing day. For everyone who is still listening, it thank you so much. Nice. Feel free to subscribe, join the channel, leave a comment. We'll answer them. Uh, and uh, like I said, thanks a lot. And I wish you to have an amazing day, Hussein. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. It was a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, keep up the good work. This is a very good podcast that uh, can help actually professionals in the field advance their career maybe and uh, learn from people with various profiles that uh, we appreciate a lot. Thank you for the good work. Awesome. Thanks to Sam.